and welcome. This is Unorthodoxy and my name is Duncan Rayburn. I've wanted for a long time to take a walk through what I think is arguably the most fascinating and controversial book in the whole Bible, which I guess is a bit of an overstatement. To say it's the most fascinating and controversial book in the, in the Bible is, is almost like saying it's the most controversial book ever written, since the Bible on the whole is not exactly known for being uncontroversial. The Bible was uh, put together by various committees, and clearly for them, political correctness wasn't part of their agenda. Wherever you fit on the faith spectrum, the book of Job, which is what I'll be looking at in the series, will have something to say to you. The atheist Hegelian um, Lacanian philosopher Slavoj Žižek, who the wonderful philosopher William Desmond affectionately calls the Lacanian Lord of Misrule, which is a really great title to have, um, Žižek says in his book The Puppet and the Dwarf that the book of Job is the first critique of ideology to have been composed in human history. And then Zizek repeats this idea everywhere he goes. Uh, he's known for repeating himself endlessly. So Job is important, he says, basically, because it's a kind of archetype of how to tell the system to go and get screwed. There are good reasons for his assessment of the book of Job, but this is not how people usually think of it, especially within conservative circles. Usually, people read the book of Job and find, on the surface, a fairly simple story about a rich guy who goes through a kind of hell, and then he comes out the other side less in less bad shape than he was during the, the majority of the story. And there's also a kind of philosophical tiff between God and Satan thrown into the mix for good measure, obviously, and, and then there's a different kind of philosophical tiff between Job and his so-called friends. But here's what I think. I think that if you read the book of Job only on the surface like this, and then infer all sorts of conclusions based on these kind of simplistic assumptions, you can only end up basically going through an exercise in missing the point. Not that there's only one point to be made clearly, which is part of my point here. Most people, for instance, regard the book of Job as a kind of theodicy, that is, um, they see it as an explanation for how God can allow human suffering. Calvinists, among others, have used the book of Job as proof that everything that happens, happens for a reason. And then the totally unreasonable, insanely cruel stuff also seems to happen for a reason, according to this perspective. And it's exactly this kind of approach to reading the book of Job that has allowed Louis de Bernier to comment on the book of Job that it's it's really difficult to tell the difference between God and the devil. And as far as I can tell, Calvinist and de Bernier agree on a fairly mechanistic reading of the book of Job that is, as I see it, completely wrong. Um, so obviously the book deals with suffering and, and somewhat with the subject of what God is doing behind the scenes. A lot of that, though, is speculation. So which I'll get to um, as we walk through this. But it seems to me that the book is more like a critique of theodicy. In the end, I think it raises more questions about the problem of suffering and evil than it solves. I'd even go so far as to say that reading it as a book about theodicy is a little like reading Marx's Capital as a recipe book about making cakes for a toddler's birthday party. Because the book of Job offers a glance at some kind of behind-the-scenes material, especially when God and Satan are 
chatting, uh, people think that the book of Job is really giving us a taste of God's real power and control over human affairs. And again, I think this misses the point. There's just so much going on here that a surface reading is going to prevent us from seeing. So, let's start with the obvious. Job is a work of fiction. This is not a very controversial point, although some people might think it's just me being controversial. It's actually only in very recent times that books like Job and Jonah and the Genesis poem have become regarded as historical factual records. When we're reading the book of Job, we should notice that we're dealing with literature and mythology, not history. Forgive me for even needing to point this out, point out this really obvious thing. Clearly, as far as I can see, um, we live in really weird times if this statement of the obvious has become a necessity. In the Talmud, we read that Job never was and never existed. The book of Job is only a parable. Okay, I'd like to take issue with this Talmudic commentator's idea that this is only a parable. It is a parable, yes, but this does not in any way diminish it. In my estimation, this heightens its importance. People still fill cinemas these days and weep and get angry while they're watching fiction. The apparent fictionalness of these movies, as with the book of Job, matters not a smidge. But we live in strange times, times in which people get mad that Christopher Nolan some got some facts wrong in the movie Dunkirk, instead of recognizing that, of course he got the facts wrong, because it's not about the facts, or at least it's not just about the facts. The actors look nothing like the people in the original events, and they share nothing of the life of those original participants, and we're watching a piece of cinema. Good grief, it's a movie for God's sake, just like recognize that that's what it is, and then maybe it will have something to say to you. And the same goes for the book of Job. If we're going to understand its meaning, we need to look at the medium and appreciate the medium itself. The same goes, I guess, for any book, including uh, any book in the Bible that you would happen to, to pick up, or yeah, whatever kind of fiction or, or philosophy you read. You need to understand what it is in order to understand what it is trying to do. So when that rab rabbi commentator says that the book of Job is only a parable, he's alluding to a parable to told by Nathan to David. Where Nathan tells David a story about this rich guy who stole the only sheep this poor guy had, and David gets so mad at the rich guy, because he takes the story literally at first, and then Nathan tells David that he is the rich guy. And David doesn't say to Nathan, holy cow, Nathan, what are you smoking? I haven't taken anyone's sheep. You've got your facts wrong. Nope. David recognizes at a deeper level than the mere facts just how much of a dickish rich dude he really is. In fact, the real meaning of the story comes from shifting from a literal reading into a more sort of metaphorical, parabolic reading. So, if Job is a myth of sorts, it doesn't mean that it isn't true. It means that it is more than true, or truer on a larger scale. It's more like, uh, it's more than merely a bunch of facts. It speaks of life as something drenched in meaning. When I say that Lord of the Rings is fiction, I don't mean that it no longer matters, but that it matters at a deeper level than just at the level of the obvious details of the story. So, 
The book of Job is not a mere parable, but, thank goodness, a real parable, a story that is meant to be interpreted and reinterpreted and read and reread. It's a story that requires our participation and our, our deep thinking and reflection. As a parable, it's not a historical treatise, but an invitation to us to come and learn, to find ourselves in its words, to find the world that we live in within a context that looks nothing like what we're familiar with. Job is, for this reason, typically regarded as being one of the wisdom books, like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes or Sirach or the Wisdom of Solomon. Wisdom is something we need to clothe ourselves in, immerse ourselves in, even drown in occasionally. It's not something that we should take as mere information. Wisdom needs to be, in some way, embodied. It needs to be lived. It needs to overtake us. And that's not something that facts can allow for. But Job presents us with a kind of anti-wisdom wisdom. It's a kind of wisdom in revolt, a disruptive kind of wisdom. The typical wisdom of the book of Proverbs has a kind of karmic dimension to it. If you do good things, good things will happen to you. It kind of goes like that. Proverbs buys into the standard human, I guess, expected view of causality, which is nice if you live in a simple world. But our world is not simple, and the writers of the book of Job know this, maybe writer, we'll get to that. So that book, this wonderful parable, basically tells karma to take a hike. That's what the book of Job is doing. It's not, it's not siding with the standard kind of karmic view of things. It says karma doesn't work. I mean, maybe in some sense karma makes sense. If you punch your neighbor, maybe you'll get punched back. Justice seems to hinge on karma in some sense. It works on this idea that Eyes equal eyes and teeth equal teeth. But in the cosmic scheme, karma doesn't manage to account for everything. There's simply too much else that is going on. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes bad people happen to good things. Sometimes good people happen to bad things. Sometimes causality isn't the only thing that's going on. So that's the sort of starting point um, that we must adopt when we're looking for wisdom in Job, not the historical veracity of the whole story. There are claims, especially in some traditions, that Job really did exist. That's not really a problem, though, um, although it's, to me, a, a limiting perspective. Um, in Oman, for instance, you can go and visit the so-called tomb of Job, as well as a very large footprint that was made by Job, supposedly. Um, when I say large footprint, by the way, I mean really large. Um, it's something like six feet or so, a six-foot foot. Either Job was really tall, <laughs> or he had a really bad case of ele elephantiasis. That's it, though. The general trend in ancient and modern scholarship is to say that Job is not about a real guy, but about some kind of metaphysical and existential philosophical drama. To think about the book of Job otherwise is to risk missing what it's trying to say to us. To insist only on the facts is to miss an opportunity to get beyond the facts. So that's the first thing I, that I wanted to say about the book of Job, just to give us some context about what we're going to be digging into. Job is fiction. I probably went a little bit too long on that point. But then, the second thing I need to say about the book of Job is that it contains more than one genre. This has made, 
for some pretty fairly long-winded philosophical debates and in in sort of contemporary scholarship. If there are multiple genres, was this complex work written by, by many authors um, and then pieced together later by a single author or a committee? Well, maybe. Maybe one author wrote it but elected to use different genres. Honestly, I don't care. The idea of genre is important here, but matters of authorship are modern concerns that have very little to do with the world that this story emerged from. And it's not going to occupy much of my time here. What's more important to think about on the question of genre is the idea that genre gives us clues into how to interpret things. If you're watching a horror movie, for instance, and the giant spider crawls out of the stomach of one of the main characters amidst blood-curdling screams, the genre itself, the structure of it, tells you now is not a good time to laugh. If the joke hits you in comedy, you do laugh, though, because the genre codes have indicated something of how you should respond. But what happens when we're dealing with multiple genres within the same text? The book of Job is tonally a little all over the place. Um, it's something that I think a lot of film critics, when they're watching films, they talk about tonal disjunctions, and, and they say that's an indication of why it's a bad work of, of cinema. But... Maybe that's not true of this this book. What it means, at least uh, for the moment, is that we cannot presume any expected way of responding. If we really want to take it seriously, the text doesn't allow us to settle into our own assumptions and biases. In fact, I think that's one of the main things that the book of Job is trying to do. It's trying to disrupt our expectations. Um, and one of the ways it does this is to use multiple genre codes. That said, though, what I do want to point out for now is that a significant portion of Job consists of poetry. There's prose at the beginning and at the end of the book, of course, but poetry gets the most airtime. It's, it's mostly a poetic literary work offering us insights into human psychology and perception. And what poetry tends to do is to offer us layers of meaning, a surplus of meaning, and thus also multiple opportunities and options for interpretation. Poetry offers us an aesthetic experience as well. When we read or listen to poetry, it's just plain stupid to arrive at conclusions about the definitive, precise, scientific meaning of the text. That's to read it wrong. For instance, when the poet Dylan Thomas writes about raging against the dying of the light and not going gentle into that good night, we don't immediately think that he's offering a slightly exaggerated and bizarre response to the fact that the sun is setting. He's not giving us advice about how we should stand looking at the horizon, shaking our fists like lunatics at the sight of the evening star while night fast approaches us. He's not telling us all to go out of our way to be weird. He's talking about death and suffering and is offering a kind of profound distrust of any claim that the afterlife should be regarded as a consolation. And that's just the start of it. The night is not the night, but something else. Or a whole lot of other things. It's existential dread and a kind of Heideggerian being towards death and the fear of not having lived enough and the potential to regret being alive at all. The essence of poetry is encapsulated in a formula that is used to describe all metaphor. This means that. This is not this, but something else. X equals Y. 
So a tree is not a tree, but a, a symbol of growth and life and complexity and stability and many other things. And the sun is not just the sun, but Juliet and hope and opportunity and a new beginning and the heat of conscience. That's poetry. You can't read a poem at only one level. That's boring and limiting and unhelpful, ultimately. Poetry is trying to break open our limited perspectives on things. It's trying to get at something else, more at more than itself. A poem is a kind of container of infinities and multitudes, just like all of us. A poem is words and more than words. It's life. It's the universe. It's everything. So this insight, this idea that Job is mostly poetic, should feed back into how we read the prose too. If we insist, for example, on reading Job as merely an account of some events, God talking to Satan, Job arguing with his friends, and so on, we're going to get the meaning of things muddled. So here's an example, and it's one that rather appropriately comes from the first line of the book of Job. There we read these words. There once was a man who lived in the land of Uz, whose name was Job. It's like the start of a fairy tale, actually, when you read it like that. Uh, the land of Uz. The next line says this. That man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now you could look at this merely at the level of facts. So let's start with Uz. Where was Uz or is Uz? Uz was probably located south of ancient Edom, although there are disputes about where this was exactly. And Maybe we can take this a bit further. Where was Edom? Well, Edom was a country in the Transjordan between Ammon and to the north and the Dead Sea and um, Arabah to the west. And, and the Arabian Desert is, is to the south and east. And so that's a kind of geographical location as best as we might want to guess it. And maybe I'm just not an enthusiastic ge geographer, but this stuff just is kind of boring. It's certainly not what literature is for, accounting for where places are. What really matters is not where the place was or is, but what it means. The significance of us in the context of the biblical stories must begin, at, at least as I see it, with this really simple idea. It was not Israel. Job, the protagonist and hero of this tragic story, was not in Israel. Now, because this is literature and because we're looking ahead to when a ton of poetry shows up, this simple idea opens up a whole array of possible interpretations. If Job wasn't in Israel, there's a chance that he wasn't one of the chosen people. Really, that's one of the chances. He wasn't perhaps an Israelite. Maybe he wasn't Jewish. And so when we learn that Job is going to be singled out by God as being the most holy dude on planet Earth... Any Israelite would have gasped, you mean the most holy dude on earth wasn't one of us? How can this be? We are the chosen frozen. So how can the guy with the most righteous beard on the planet be an outsider? Something like that. Poetically and literarily speaking, then, we have one possible interpretation here. Maybe Job wasn't Jewish and his righteousness had nothing to do with his chosenness. Maybe Job was an Edomite, just like maybe, I don't know, the idea that the most righteously bearded person you know is the nice Muslim dude who lives next door to you. Maybe if God were to wander the earth looking for where goodness is most evident, he'd pick the very person you think is destined for some serious time in Hades. 
maybe your theology is just wrong, for heaven's sake, so maybe you should fix it. So that is really one legitimate way to read this one little line. But we're dealing with literature here, so this doesn't have to be the only way you look at it. If there's something that totally nauseates me when it comes to reading literature, it's when people say, well, that's not what it means. That's absolutely not what it means. How do they know? We're not on YouTube or Netflix here. Literature is not merely a matter of hitting thumbs up or thumbs down or saying I like it or I don't like it. Maybe you don't like the movie you've just watched, but maybe it's saying more to you than just, hey, please like me. That's the basest, most basic of any possible mode of engagement. Can we not do better than that? So that's what I'm going to do here. I'm trying to get beyond the obvious. I don't mind if you don't like what I'm saying or if you don't agree with it. What matters is what meanings does this or that thing that has been said conjure for you? What ideas does this spark? How can our, our different interpretations play off each other's interpretations and spark new ways of looking at familiar things. So let's get back to that one little line, there once was a man who lived in the land of Uz. Another way of looking at this is to say that Job was Jewish, but that he was living somewhere else, somewhere outside of the promised land. Maybe the promised land hadn't even been promised yet. Some scholars suggest that the book of Job is the oldest book in the whole Bible a book that existed through an oral tradition that predated the whole Israel, Israel leaving Egypt and finding a promised land thing. It was before the whole promised land thing. And if this was so, um, well then that line from the poem might mean something like, being cool with God has nothing to do with which country you live in. And if this was after the whole promised land thing, well then maybe it means something like, your alienation and distance from where you put your hope may not be such a big deal. There's another way of looking at the land of Uz idea, and it's simply the idea that Job lived in an exotic country. This seems to be a kind of literary trope that gets used in a few biblical books. Maybe Job was a tourist, or a traveler, or explorer. He had his stuff with him, obviously, as the book indicates, but there are also signals of some kind of transition that he is part of. And this would fit with a few ideas um, that exist in the rest of the book. It's a simple line that we've just dealt with, but when you start looking at the larger overtones of the line, meaning opens up like a window onto all kinds of incredible vistas. We have a whole number of other possibilities. Maybe we have indications here that being righteous has nothing to do with where you are, and maybe being righteous has nothing to do with being righteous, if you'll pardon the paradox. You can be true to your people and your God, whether you're in your homeland or not. Maybe you can be true to God even when your life isn't exactly where it needs to be. Uh, maybe you can be true to God even if you don't believe in her. So this idea, as some of you are already realizing, may have some relevance for what comes later. And all of this is just from looking at one line. There was a man who lived in the land of us. It's one line, but it has huge potential, and with a little digging and some seriously uh, you know, attentive reading, we can discover its provocative power. Maybe that line is nudging us, digging its elbow into our ribs, and saying, hey, who's the best Christian you know? Well, maybe it's that atheist over there who thinks you're 
your Christianity is insipid. Or maybe what happens when you're you're not where you want to be? Well, you're still you, so do the best with what you can. Life is going to throw trouble at you no matter where you are. Maybe you wanted to get away from that trouble, but there it is lurking, waiting to pounce on you anyway. Of course, some of you are already thinking that this cannot possibly be what that one line means. And yes, it's possible that I'm missing something in the way that I'm reading it. But I don't think you can say necessarily that I'm outright wrong. Maybe you're, you're going to want to Netflix, YouTube, thumbs down my interpretations. But again, reading literature is less about right and wrong, or rather correct and incorrect, than it is about what happens to us and within us when we are confronted with this unique aesthetic experience. This, not so coincidentally, is also what wisdom is about. It's about what happens within us as we are and as we live and as as we act in the world. Wisdom is is the inside of us made external in loving action. It's it's just not about lining up all the empirical facts. This is not about saying that facts are irrelevant. It's it's factually true that us isn't in Israel. Well, you could argue that if you're looking at geography, but the meaning of the fact is what gives that line about where Job lived its real resonance. There's this uh, this wonderful moment towards the beginning of G.K. Chesterton's story, The Club of Queer Trades, where one of the characters remarks on the nature of fact. He tells us that Sherlock Holmes is misguided to think that facts matter as much as they do. Of course, they're always there, always a part of our horizon of understanding, but facts on their own point in a million directions like the twigs on a tree. The facts of a, a smudge on a table or a wound or, are only sensible in the end when they are tied to a larger context or truth. If facts are like twigs on a tree, Chesterton suggests, then the trunk of the tree is like the truth. It anchors the facts, gives them structure and purpose and life. What literature is trying to draw us into is precisely the life of the thing, not the dead fact. You may not, in the end, appreciate this literary um, poetic approach to Job, but to me that would only be a, a sign that you're not appreciative of literature and poetry. In which case, I've got good news for you, there are other places to look. Other books to read, another life to be lived. Be my guest, go and do that. My aim here in this series is to look, sometimes in detail, sometimes through rough sketches, at some of the meanings, plural meanings, of the book of Job. And if that sounds interesting to you, then you have come to the right place. And what's more interesting, perhaps, is that in the next episode, I'm going to be talking about what the music of Johann Sebastian Bach might have to teach us about how Job is composed. I hope you join me for that. Cheers for now.